Job has 42 chapters, and I thought, well, that's a lot. Normally, I go one chapter a week, and we'll be here for like a year, right? And so um, I thought I would just kind of do it different, at least this introductory uh, chapters, and uh, kind of like if you can visualize me writing on the chalkboard, okay? And I'll be kind of walking around here. Um, I really want you guys to learn this, you know, uh, the school of suffering. We learn so much there, you know, about the sovereignty of God, about how God works in our life, how he works everything together for good. And as you go through those times of your life, you know, this book, you really got to know it. You really have to have it in your heart. Uh, A couple of things, just by way of introduction, like I mentioned, it has 42 chapters. But after the first three chapters, which kind of offer the background to the book, What ends up happening, basically, the whole book is six uh, persons who speak, okay? Four of them are the friends of Job, and we're going to see later if we have friends like that who needs enemies, you know, they're supposedly friends. Um, Then there's Job himself who speaks, and then, of course, there's the Lord. And so all it is is a dialogue between friends and Job and the Lord, and it's the whole book. It's really amazing. Uh, I want to introduce you to some of those friends. The first one is Aliphaz. Now, this guy speaks three times in the book, three different times, a total of four chapters. And basically, what we find is that Job is uh, suffering. He's just gone through the calamities that are unexplainable, that are beyond our comprehension. And so when his friends come and visit him, they're literally, the Bible says, miserable comforters. Because they have the mentality that says, you know, if you're a Christian, then nothing bad will ever happen to you. That if you're a Christian, man, everything goes perfect. It's like hunky-dory, man. And you'll never experience the sufferings uh, that the non-Christians experience. And that's, that's not what the Bible says. You know, as a matter of fact, the Bible promises you're going to have tribulation in John 16, 33. How come we don't see that in the promise books, you know? In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But he said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And so when they saw that Job was sick and suffering with boils from the tip of his head to the bottoms of his toes, I mean, they thought, surely he's in sin. I mean, his kids have died. He lost all his wealth. Man, I'll bet you there's sin in his life. And that's what they came and they shared with him. You know, imagine that. Man, I hate it when sometimes Christians do that. They come in their self-righteousness and their Bible thumpers and they're thinking that they got you all figured out. You know, this is what uh, Eliphaz uh, shares. Uh, Job, you've sinned. Job, you're foolish. Job, you're wicked. We're going to see he was so wrong. Right after him, another guy named Bildad comes, and he also speaks three times, a total of three chapters. And his, basically his message is, Job, you should repent. The wicked are the ones who are punished, and how can man possibly be righteous? And then after him, Zophar comes, and he speaks a couple of times, a total of two chapters, chapters 11 and 20. And same thing, you know, that he should repent. And then he shares this crazy sermon on, on the wicked, you know, trying to reach Job, right? Trying to, you know, convince him that he needs to change. Finally, this guy Elihu speaks. And um, he only speaks one time because he's a young guy. He's like waiting and waiting and waiting for the old guys to finish speaking. 
And then he's like, you know, well, you guys didn't make any sense. He kind of criticizes the friends, then he criticizes Job. And you know how it is as a young guy kind of having that respect and giving them the opportunity to, to speak first. But then when he does speak, homeboy just keeps talking, man. I mean, the other guy's four chapters, three chapters, two chapters. He does six chapters, you know. And so that's a lot of times, huh, the foolishness of these young guys. And he comes and he, you know, questions uh, Job's friends and Job. And he, he proclaims God's justice, condemns self-righteousness, God's goodness, God's majesty. One of the things you're going to see in the book of Job is that there's a lot of truths in the book of Job if you isolate them in and of themselves. But the problem is, is that they were applying them to Job and they were not applicable. And so we're going to benefit in a lot of ways. But one of the things that we're going to see is that you got to know how to apply truth. You have to make sure that, you know, you're not one of those Christians who are, who are judgmental. I've seen some Christians, man, they think they're the Holy Spirit. You know, they go around, they're sin sniffing, and they think they know you, and, and they really don't, man. We have to be so careful. Like, if someone is going through a hard time, I'll be honest with you, man, I would, I would be very, very slow, you know, go up to them and judge them. I'd be very careful. If I knew something was going on, that's different. But, you know, we, we have to be so, oh, that calamity happened to them. I'm sure they did something wrong. You know what? Man, we don't know. And so I pray that we would learn how these guys, even though they had truths, they didn't know how to apply it. And then finally, Job speaks. And, and I love Job because... You know, he, he doesn't necessarily like sin. He doesn't like curse God to his face. We're going to see which ultimately is what the devil wants. When you go through hard times, you know, the devil wants you to just walk away from the Lord. Ultimately, you know what? You're a Christian. I thought you signed up for something good. Look what happened to you. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you go to church? You know, curse God to his face, his wife is going to say, and just die. You know, and... And so Job, he doesn't do that. But I tell you what, man, he struggles. He does struggle. He does ask why. And I know we're not supposed to do that, you know, but, you know, he, he's this man, his heart is aching. He's gone through so much. But at the end of the day, even though he's, you know, pouring out his heart, even though he's struggling, even though he's going through times where he's like, God, where are you? Where's the mediator? If only I could really talk to God. Even though he goes through times like that, when it's all said and done, God says, he's right on. He's right on. This guy is accepted by me. The rest of you self-righteous Pharisees, you're the ones that are in trouble. You better offer sacrifices, and you better make sure Job prays for you. Otherwise, you're in big trouble. You know, so I love, you know, the honesty of it, you guys. You know, sometimes we have like this plastic Christianity, and, uh, and we don't get real with God. And God sees you're your crying. God sees you're aching. God sees you're hurting. You know, when we go through hard times, we're going to see one of the th reasons we go through hard times is because he wants to enhance your relationship with him. And so, you know, you, you, some of you guys, you're tough. How many of you here are tough? You're like, yeah, tough, yeah, right. <laughs> and so anyways, you know, it's kind of like with our kids. I don't know if you had any kids like this, but, you know, you give them a, a trancaso, you give them a spanking, and they're like, oh, it didn't hurt. You, ever, you have any kids like that? And so then you hit them harder, right? 
And they're still like, oh, it didn't hurt. <laughs> and they try to frustrate you that way. I think sometimes we're like that with God. When in all reality, one of the things that happens in life, I'm not saying that God authors everything, but he allows everything, is he turns up the heat. Why? Because he wants you to draw near to him. But you don't draw near to him. You mean not really. Not like sincerely. Not like wholeheartedly on your face drawing near to him. So you know what he does? He turns it up hotter. He turns it up hotter. He turns it up hotter. And he's not like your kid. Your kids have got away with it because you couldn't hit him anymore or else you go to jail, right? <laughs> with God, he'll get your attention one way or another. But you just got to, you got to, man, prayerfully, you don't make it difficult. But what we find with Job, man, he, you know, poured out his heart. His complaint is just. I don't have a mediator you know, I would plead with God, answering my critics. My friends are miserable comforters. And, you know, just all these things that he shared on, we're going to learn so much. And then finally, the last one to speak is the Lord. And he only speaks two times, about four and a half chapters. And, you know, when God comes on the scene, he's like, you know, who is this who darkens counsel? Speaking to the friends, right? And then he, he speaks to Job. Where were you when I made the earth? Do you know everything? Anyone here know everything? No one here knows everything. Only God does. You got to trust him no matter what. God challenges Job. He says, I will question you. You know, what we find in looking at this is God corrects Job, but he condemns his friends. And we'll see that in the end today. You know, I want to read to you an overview um, right here in, in the book. We have a complete overview. It says, The book of Job begins in heaven with a conversation between God and Satan. And then it moves to earth for a detailed look at the life of an ancient patriarch named Job. Overnight, think about this, overnight, God's ble Job's blessings dissolve into heartaches as he suffers the loss of his health, wealth, family, and status. Left in turmoil over his sudden change of fortune, Job seeks an answer to the question, why? And so four human counselors are unable to provide the insight Job desperately needs. Finally, it's up to the Lord to teach Job some valuable lessons on the sovereignty of God and the need for complete trust in the Lord who is constantly at work behind the scenes. You know, some people think, well, Job is all about suffering, and, and part of it is. But you want to know something? That's not the main message of Job. The main message of Job is the sovereignty of God. Uh, how many of you here like poetry, just out of curiosity? All the, all the girls, no, I'm just joking. Here's, a, here's what I call a very cool poem. Okay, listen to this, listen to this. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. 
And we want to know now. And then sometimes we do get glimpses. Oh, okay, now I see why that happened. Now I see why my mom got in a car accident when I was really little and she's gone through everything she's gone through in her life and my brother died on that car accident. Now I see why my dad went through what he went through and the heroin addiction and homelessness on Skid Row. Now I see why my wife's little brother died. Now I see why her dad got cancer. You know, you begin to see some of the reasons for some of the things that we go through now, but man, a lot of the things, they will not be answered until we're home in heaven. But I want you to know something. They'll be answered. You will see the wisdom of God, even in those dark threads that are woven into your life. And you will praise him. See, that's the main thing that we have to know as we go through life, as we go through sufferings. You know, Romans 8.28, it says, God works all things together for good uh, to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. For every single Christian, when you put it all together, it's going to be good. Not for the non-believer, unfortunately. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ, it's a different story. But for us, his redeemed, those who love him, those who are the called, those who are Christians, it is all work together for good. It doesn't mean it's all good when you isolate it in and of itself, but it's all work together for good. And so as far as who wrote the book of Job, um, the author is unknown. We don't know for sure. Uh, there are, 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 are textual hints. It says there are no textual hints as to his identity. Commentators, whoever, have been generous with suggestions like uh, Job himself, Elihu, Moses, Solomon, Isaiah, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Baruch, and Ezra have all been nominated. Um, bottom line is we don't know, right? This interesting, the non-Hebraic cultural background of the book may point to an actual Gentile authorship. And so we're going to see um, the rabbinic traditions, it says, are inconsistent, but one Talmudic tradition suggests that Moses wrote the book because the land of Uz, we're going to see, is close to Midian, which is where Moses had fled when he fled for, from Egypt for 40 years. And so if you could go back to that, I almost finished reading it, but I didn't quite read it yet. <laughs> I have it right here. It's okay. Um, but this thing is not really giving me the full picture. So um, did we get back to that? Yeah? Okay. And it is, in, it, is, it is conceivable that Moses obtained a record of the dialogue left by Job or Elihu. And so if you go to the next slide, what you'll see is a map. And so there's where we believe Uz is. If you can see Midian, it's right there. Uh, the land of us is mentioned seven times in the Bible. So going all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to see that's part of the reason we believe that um, it was during the time of Abraham, more than likely, or maybe even before, but it was right around that time that they lived to be around 200 years old, which is how long around Mos um, Job lived. And so it all kind of works together, and you'll see the, today even the, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, they're the ones that raid um, um, Job's family. 
And, uh, and not only that, Lamentations 4.21, it says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. So it connects Edom there in Lamentations 4 with Uz. And so a lot of people believe that that's uh, why we Moses perhaps got some of the, the material and, and wrote it. Bottom line is, uh, we don't know. Okay, the theme of it. The, the basic question in the book is, why do the righteous suffer if God is loving and all-powerful? Uh, suffering itself, however, it says, is not the central theme. Rather, the focus is on what we learn from his suffering. The sovereignty of God over all creation. The debate in the book is whether God would allow suffering to happen to a person who is innocent. The oversimplified solutions offered by Job's three friends are inadequate. Elihu's claim that God can use suffering to purify the righteous is close to the mark. And the conclusion in the end is that God is sovereign and worthy of worship and whatever he chooses to do. And we must learn to trust in the goodness and power of God in adversity by enlarging our concept of God. And so maybe you're in a picture of me writing on the chalkboard right here while we're doing this, okay? Because you're like, why is Manny turned the wrong way? I'm sorry, but it doesn't have a complete picture here. And so um, here, here's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, why, why do we suffer? And, and let me give you guys uh, four things to think about, okay? As a result of the fall, we experience opposition. Okay, so we live in a fallen world. Things are broken. Under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, okay? And we're going to see that even today. Because Job is in love with the Lord. Job is right on. We're going to see he's blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. And so the devil comes after him. That's the way it is. If you're not doing anything, Spurgeon said, the devil doesn't kick a dead horse. Right? So you're not doing anything for the Lord. He'll just leave you alone. You go on your merry way because you're not impacting the kingdom. But when you fall in love with the Lord, you start serving and working. And he, even for some of you here, he sees potential. He sees potential in your life. Man, that guy right there, I don't want him to grow up. That gal right there, I don't want her to become a godly woman. And so, you know, of course he's got that strategy. So when people are going in the right direction, they will experience opposition. You got the devil, you got his demons. They're not innumerable, but there are many of them. And so when you see a person who loves God, they're right on. That's part of the reason why they suffer. You know, I don't know for sure. I'm just going to throw this out there. There's a good chance that our brother Angel right here is, is physically going through what he's going. I don't know if you guys knew this, but he used to play guitar. But he got this injury on his hand. Who knows? I mean, forgive me, Angel. I, I mean, but who knows? maybe the devil said, I don't like that. I don't like the way he plays guitar. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch him. God, you got to let me touch him. But it's so cool because it didn't stop him, huh? Angel said, I'll just learn how to play the piano, right? <laughs> but you know, things like that are real. They're real. And so one of the things is opposition. Second thing is sanctification. Like I said earlier, the fire is turned up. So you go through hard times and the, the dross rises to the surface. And so when you go through suffering or you experience difficulties, the, the dross rises to the surface. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to leave it there? 
Or are you going to skim it off? Will you ever change? God's trying to get our attention. He's trying to change us into the image of his son. Right? Until we, that dross and dross, this takes off and off until finally he can see his image in you. You know? And so, you know, you give someone a spanking. You know, a kid, man, it's for the modification of their behavior, for the, the transformation of their heart. That's why we go through what we go through. And it's all, you know, works together. The third thing is what I would call conviction. And part of the reason we go through suffering is because God wants to grow our faith. Did you guys know that? Yeah, that your faith is supposed to grow? I mean, the Lord talked about some women who had great faith. I've never seen faith like this, even in the whole house of Israel. Wow. God wants our faith to grow. So Paul the Apostle was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, right? And so he pleaded with the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times, Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. God says, no, my grace is sufficient because when you're weak, then I'm strong. What's he trying to say? What he's trying to say is, trust me, trust me. And what that is, is when you're dependent upon the Lord and not yourself, then, you know, God, man, your faith grows. And there's that, that conviction. You know, I, I know, it, I think it might be important to, to talk a little bit about what that, that thorn in the flesh was. You know, and, and some of you here, you know what the thorn of the, in the flesh was, 2 Corinthians 12, huh? And if you say yes, then you're lying. In church, you're lying. Because we don't know. But I think there's a reason we don't know. Because God didn't want us to know. Want to know why? Because that thorn in the flesh, it can be different things. Some people I've noticed over the years, they struggle more physically. They go through physical calamities because that is what is going to happen in their life. You know, and that's one of the things that we struggle with. Another thorn in the flesh is relationally. And so now you think of people, okay? So some, they get hit physically. I know it's the devil. Other times, it's relationally. And let me tell you how that works, okay? Number one, it could be somebody like Alexander the coppersmith, who Paul said did him much harm. And there is somebody in your life that treats you terrible. They're a thorn in the flesh. Now, don't say it's your spouse, okay? Don't say that. Okay, but bottom line is, it might be your boss. It might be somebody that the devil has, has strategically been allowed to put in your life. Not only relationally in the bad sense, but also relationally in the good sense. And by that, I mean your loved one it gets hit physically. Your loved one relationally sometimes is taken home. Those are hard things when you're talking about people. And so it can be good that you love them, but bad that it happened to them. You know, these are things that we deal with. It can be physically, relationally, and it can also be circumstantially. Like Job, when he lost everything. You know, he lost his wealth. Some people lose their jobs. And just things happen like that. And so... Why do we suffer? Opposition, sanctification, conviction, because God is trying to grow our faith. 
And then the last thing is relation. And like I said earlier, he's trying to draw us closer to him. Do you guys understand that yet? You're like, well, why am I still going through this situation? And, you know, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's because God still hasn't got your full attention yet. And he's saying, mijo, when, when are you going to pray like you should? When are you going to, you know, do the things that, that I've been laying on your heart to do? And so he turns up the heat. And what he wants to do is he wants to draw us close to him, which I think, to be honest with you, is pretty cool. And so anyways, uh, when you look at the whole book of Job, it really kind of divides up into three sections. The big picture, number one is the dilemma that Job finds himself in when he loses everything. Um, number two is the debate as they're going back and forth. They're trying to reason this whole thing out. And I just want to encourage you guys to know that God is bigger than the box that we try to put him in. You know, we have some answers, but man, for the most part, we don't. You just have to trust him. Remember what Warren Wiersbe said? We don't live on explanations. We live on promises, right? Romans 8, 28. God will work everything together for good. We got to stand on that promise. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. We've got to stand on those things. God hasn't left you. He's still with you and he loves you just as much as he ever has. And he still has good plans. But they're trying to debate. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to say it's sin when it's not really sin. You know, one of the things that you'll find even in going through trials is uh, with Job, I mean, to, you know, there's, there's multiple things going on simultaneously. You guys know that God is efficient, right? He's able to kill not just two birds with one stone, but two million birds with one stone, right? And so it's good for you, it's good for them. You know, as you're going through the trial, think about this. As you're going through whatever the calamity is that you're experiencing, people are watching you. Just like we're watching Job. And if they see you going through that trial with joy, what a witness that is. To where you could come to the place and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I mean, there's so many things going on in, during this whole thing. These guys, they're trying to figure it out and they're debating and, you know, they don't know what's going on. Even Job himself doesn't. But man, you know, they're having that conversation and then at the end, there's, there's the deliverance. When the Lord finally shows up, he sets them straight. And not only that, he encourages Job in the end with uh, just saying, you know what, this guy I accept. And then the Bible says that he gives him twice as much as he had in the beginning. And so does that always happen? Not always, you guys. Don't think I'm going to hang in there because you know what, eventually I'm going to get twice as much. No, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you die, okay? That's what happens. But we have to trust him. But I love what it says at the very end of the book of Job. It says, And the Lord blessed the latter years of Job more than the former. Imagine that. That's how good God is. 
It's so cool. I was telling you a little bit about my dad, you know, growing up. And I don't know all this whole story and stuff, but I know, you know, he went through a lot. And uh, like I said, eventually coming to that place where he was a heroin addict. And you guys know how tough that drug is to kick, you know. And, uh, you know, find him on Skid Row, homeless. But eventually he got saved. You know, I thank God for that. I'll never forget the day that he went up to, fo- to accept the Lord. He had a broken leg. But it was in Calvary Chapel, West Covina, and he limped up there. And, you know, he told me, he said, I would have never believed it from anyone, he said, except for you. Because this is the type of relationship that I had with my dad, right? And then he said, that's my verse. When he went through Job, he said, that's my verse. That God will bless the latter years of my life more than the former. And it's just so cool talking to him now. And you know what? The two words he says more than anything else, whenever we're on the phone or when he's writing a letter to me, is praise Jesus. He's always saying that, praise Jesus. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. You have really saved my dad. God will do that. God gave them at the end. He gave them the deliverance. And so let's start in Job chapter 1. As we come now to the first of the poetical books. And the Bible is made up of the historical, the prophetical and the poetical, and, uh, and Job is also kind of categorized along the lines of wisdom literature as well. But notice what it says in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. I always think of Oz, but it's Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Isn't that cool? And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So he had ten kids. I mean, that's amazing. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and grub and feast in their houses, each one on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. It's kind of cool, huh, how they were all together. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job digged regularly. And so we see in verses 1 through 5 that Job was blameless, And Job was blessed. I mean, this guy, no perfect man, but he was proper. I mean, you couldn't lay an accusation against him that held. He feared God. He shunned evil. Think about that. And uh, he had this family that he loved. And he was, uh, you know, a man with an abundant amount of wealth. And one of the things that it points to him, it's interesting to me, and I think this is really one of the most important things, if you're a family man, 
is that he was faithful with his family. That's the one thing it points to as a representation of his godliness, is that when his you know, kids would go and they would have a feast, he was aware of it, and he says, man, I better pray for them. He would rise up early, that means he was eager in his prayers, and he would then just pray, Lord, uh, if they've sinned, I, I pray that you would forgive them, that they would be covered by the grace of God. And so he interceded for his family, fearfully, eagerly, and the Bible says regularly, right? But look what happens in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, and that's speaking of, uh, of the angels. Think about that. Also the devil. <laughs> they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless man, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. And so Satan went out at the speed of light from the presence of the Lord to do his handiwork. You know, here we find uh, a lot of things we don't know a lot about. I mean, I trip out, I don't know if you guys do, that Satan is able to talk to God like this. You know, some people say, that, say they met at Starbucks. It wasn't heaven. No, they, he was somehow able to go. Revelation chapter 12 says one day he'll never, he won't be able to anymore. One day they'll be cast out and the devil will know that he's got a short time, but you know, I don't know when, who knows, maybe we've already reached that point, but, um, you know, the Bible says in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, that, that Satan went before the Lord and he accused Joshua. What does the Bible say? He's the accuser of the brethren. That's kind of what he's doing right here in one sense, even though the tough thing about it is that when Satan goes and reports to the Lord, you know, the Lord says, hey, where you been? I've been cruising back and forth on the earth, right? The whole planet, think about it, the first time the word globetrotter was ever invented. You know, and he was mad. And, and so, you know, when you wonder, why, Lord, why did you bring up Job? You know, you're the one that brought him up. Hey, have you seen my servant Job? Have you seen my servant Gabe, Alex, Angel, Rico? Have you seen those guys, man? Oh, and you're like, Lord, why you throw my name out there? <laughs> he really hadn't before. But you know, it's just crazy. And Satan says, well, the only reason he really loves you is because their life is all perfect. You know what? You take away everything that he has, and he will no longer serve you. Right? And so the Lord says, okay, go, go for it. You can go ahead and do what you got to do. I'm going to give you a limitation, though. Don't touch him. Don't touch his body, right? And we learn that Satan is a slanderer. And we learn things about this, you know, kingdom and 
Bottom line is, uh, you know, Satan is not the equivalent to God, but in one sense, even though they all kind of do what they want to do, they're working for God. And we've got to know that. God's on the throne working everything together for good. You know, uh, God permits Satan to do what he wants, but he sets limitations, just like in our life. Don't ever think that, 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 that whatever has happened to your life has not been filtered through your Father's love. Okay, it's been permitted by him. Not always authored, but allowed. And somehow God's going to work it together for good. And so what ends up happening in verse 12? And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's pad. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Thou Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and this is the one that just crushes us, man. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. The loss of oxen, donkeys, and servants after a raid by the Sabaeans, and so those are people. Then the loss of sheep and servants after fire fell from heaven, that's like, like a natural calamity. Then the loss of camels and servants after three raids at the hand of the Chaldeans. Again, got these people coming in and doing this damage and then finally then the one that's just so hard to understand is the loss of all his sons and daughters after a great wind blew and crushed them. I mean, 10 kids. I mean, this man loved his 10 kids. And imagine that. One day, they're all taken away. You know, and what do you do when, when calamity comes? What do you do when, you know, those trials? And, and to be honest with you, I think it's kind of, I was thinking about this because the next chapter, he actually touches his body. And we think that that's worse. I, I would venture to any parent that would say, no, that's not worse. This is worse. My kids. What do you do when you're, 
when you go through those times, what do you do? I mean, Job here, he makes it so clear what we're to do. You know, what does he do? He shaves his head, he, he's open, he's ready to, to weep and, and mourn and grieve, but he worships. He worships. And we can, you know, I pray that you and I would know this verse by heart. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what you find, you guys, in looking at, we're only going to be able to do that tonight, is, um, man, we have an example for us. We have um, someone that we can look to. And, and in one sense, I think, you know, he's a, he's a model man of what to do when we go through suffering. Because if you're not going through a trial right now, some of you guys right now um, are going through trials, right? Some of you are. If you're not right now, then you will be, you know, soon. You're either being prepared for one and you're in the middle of one. And you, what you find in life, I think, is that the more you serve the Lord, the more difficult they're going to be. And they come in so many forms. The Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into trials, knowing that the testing of your faith it produces patience. And what that speaks of there, it's a variety of trials. There's a, there's a, there's a God and, you know, he has a... a, a creative way of allowing them to come towards us and so what we got to do is we got to know God's going to work it all out for good and so we look at Job and we're like man that guy's pretty cool right and even the book's named after him Job and you're like man that guy's pretty cool but you know all Job is is a reflection of Jesus I mean Job suffered let me ask you a question did Jesus suffer we're going to see later that when his friends come and visit him, they don't even recognize him. And it reminds me of Isaiah 53 where the Bible says he was marred more than any man. You know, we're talking about Job, you know, suffering. Read Isaiah 53, then you'll see a suffering servant. And, and what you find, you guys, is that in looking at whoever the character is, they're always a reflection of Jesus. So when we're studying this book and we're like, man, Job is pretty cool, I pray that you would know it's only because of Jesus. Let me read you a story real quick to, to end. Um, and, 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 you know, when you look at, at, at Job, there's a story about a guy named James Butler Bonham. He was a 19th century American soldier who was a messenger in the Battle of Alamo and who also died at the Battle of Alamo. You go to Texas today, James Butler Bonham is a hero. And so, uh, on a wall near the main entrance of uh, Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, is a portrait with the following inscription. This is what it says. James Butler Bonham, no picture exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died 
for our freedom. And I thought that was cool. It's interesting, the display is of his nephew, but his nephew is not the hero. You know, the reason for the portrait is because he resembles him. And I thought as I'm, we're going through the book of Job, you know, uh, Job is cool. He's awesome. God's done such a great work in him. But he is not the hero. He just resembles him. Jesus is the hero, right? And I pray that as we study his life together and we see the Lord working in him and through him, who knows, man, maybe one day you and I might resemble Jesus.